Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to The View from the Lane, the world-famous Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm Danny Kelly, and I'm joined on the podcast today by both Charlie Eccleshare and James Moore from The Athletic. And Charlie, let's start with some news that broke yesterday. The manager, Antonio Conte, has tested positive for COVID. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously not ideal, but I don't think it will... Hopefully won't have had too much of an effect. I mean, he tested positive after the Villa game on the weekend... And then the players had two days off, um, as we discussed the other day. Some of them went to Augusta. So they weren't in on Sunday and Monday. Then Tuesday and Wednesday. Sorry, and Harry Kane is now so so good that he has to be referred to in the plural, yeah? <laughs> well, we don't know. that Maybe some, maybe some others did as well. Um, Matt Doherty is famously a big golf fan. Used to yeah. play with Gareth Bale a lot. R- Romero certainly likes crossing the Atlantic for no reason. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he just, yeah, hadn't, hadn't done it in a few weeks. Um, rack up those air miles yeah and then on he's basically been there Conte but at a safe distance kind of watching this all seeing eye um, mm-hmm. not actually doing the training Sauron yeah exactly <laughs> and not going inside and his staff are, are running the show but the impression I've got is that you know this being Conte he hasn't exactly just tossed it off I and mean, been like look lads you, you do it it's been very carefully micromanaged and the hope is that he'll test negative in the next couple of days and then be able to be at the Brighton game as usual but it's weird I mean we were talking about I was talking about this with James yesterday I mean it's it, obviously now despite the fact that Covid very much is still with us it's it, there aren't rules and regulations on it in the same way so obviously the, the Conte of course doesn't want to spread it and, and they absolutely don't want to spread it to the players but I, I was thinking as well about the I was saying this uh, the other day the kind of Covid sliding doors moment and were it not for that outbreak in December, then Spurs might still be in the Europa Conference League and this season would have panned out very differently. They might have beaten Arsenal in the, already in the North London derby and be uh, six points clear if the results had been exactly the same <laughs> ever since the sliding <laughs> yeah, yeah. door moment. Exactly. I don't know what the phrase living with COVID means particularly. Uh, I think it's a catch-all for a whole lot of behavioural changes and non-changes. But it only makes you wonder at the end of the game, as some managers, not Carlo Ancelotti, who could not have been less excited about be, about getting to the semi-final of the Champions League the other night. They jump around and they kiss all the players. And my advice to Antonio Conte would be choose the players that you're now kissing at the end of games quite carefully. The ones that you know you've got backup for. That's quite a good point, actually, because he does kind of throw himself into the arms of his coaching staff when Spurs score a goal. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he might, he might need to be careful. I mean, even if he does, assuming he does test positive and he feels fine, just a, negative. Like a bit of just a, negative. No, sorry, negative. Sorry, you're right. Because it's so good. Uh, yeah, it would still be a bit of a, a bit of a risk, wasn't it? I, I was just thinking it's good to see someone at the head of an organisation respect uh, COVID rules. Ready? 
just a little bit of a satirical <laughs> comment there for you, Danny. Thank you very much indeed. Enjoy uh, it. Uh, James Moore, the new Ben Elton. Um, one, one, one for the teenagers there. Um, all right, so, Such a contemporary reference, that. <laughs> that was deliberate because he used to say, um, but he used to actually say a bit of politics for you. He used to precede, <laughs> you know, in the way that um, people who had the very first motor cars were obliged to have somebody walking along in front of the vehicle with a red flag. Um, so Ben Elton used to flag up the jokes that he knew were a bit political. All right, the, let's move on then from Antonio Conte. Uh, let's assume he's going to be okay. Of course, we wish him well. No, we don't want anybody uh, to be ill. Yeah, apparently he is, by the way. I think he had mild symptoms over the weekend before the test, but he now um, is feeling well. So hopefully that remains the case. Spurs are moving, as we pointed out in the podcast in the last few weeks, in a, a, a rocket pace in the right direction. Please, please don't let me be responsible for them. Um, tripping up against Brighton now in the, at the weekend. We'll talk about that later. But some things just go round and round and round. And in the absence of a midweek game, Spurs, social media, newspapers, suddenly the argument again is about Hoiberg. Now he's in the middle of a uh, of a run with the team where they've won. James, you're very good at these things. Five out of six now in the Premier League. For certainly four on the spin. Five yeah, out of six. Yeah, five out yeah, of six. Yeah. Really good. And. Immediately, as soon as there's um, no no match to report, it's Hoiberg. Is he any good? I think it's six out of seven, actually, that they've won. Six out of seven and seven out of nine. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, Given given what we were saying, even on this podcast, let's be honest, two months ago, that is an incredible run, isn't it? I think Spurs are one of two teams in the Premier League who have won their last two games, and the other one is Brentford. Is that right? So there you go. Best two teams in the league. That big clash is on the horizon, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. next Brentford. weekend. Yeah, yeah. something's got to give. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Six Irresistible force means a movable <laughs> object. What about Hoiberg? Where are we with Hoiberg? Because in a system that Spurs are currently playing, we only have two, literally two midfield players. And I've been trying to understand what it is that Conti does in some ways, because in all my adult life, the move in coaching has been to find more and more ways to get more and more people into midfield. I grew up watching 4-4-2. Then people started playing a lone striker as an excuse to get more people into midfield. Defenders started coming out with the ball, which was an excuse to get more people into midfield. And we know that Pep Guardiola, if he could, would play 11 midfielders. And he's the great thinker on the, on the modern game. Spurs have reduced themselves to two. So they have to be doing well individually and collectively. Where are we with Hoiberg, James? Um, if we have to have this argument, and, and it, it, it's popular demand seems that, to dictate that we do have to have this argument. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when, when Skip got injured, it felt like that, that was like the end of the season and that Hoiberg and Bentanker wasn't going to be the partnership that was going to help kind of Spurs sneak into the Europa League was probably what we were saying at that point, to be honest, let alone the Champions League. But I think the key thing from Hoiberg has been that kind of discovery of these kind of incredible diagonal balls over the top, like like the one that set up the Kane goal at Leeds, and I think another goal that I'm sure Charlie is going to tell me now. There was yeah the uh, Bergvine equaliser at Leicester was his pass over to Doherty. Oh yeah, that's and, right. And he he also set up Kane's goal at Newcastle with a really nice clip over the top. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, having that kind of creativity in his locker is clearly uh, proven quite useful. But I mean, I think in the system where you've got three three proper attacking players, you don't necessarily need quite as much creativity in midfield. I mean, I still think that's the thing that Spurs need in the squad. But I think for sort of, 
a third of a season you can kind of muddle along with what Spurs have had. But this is interesting to me because um, just picking up your point there, you know, there's been talk about Christian Eriksen coming back. There's been talk about Spurs going after James Madison. Where would you put Charlie, such a creative midfielder, in a team with three out and out forwards in it? Yeah, that is. It, it is whether that would slightly unsettle the balance. And I think actually what Conte would really want is that register who can kind of drop in and pick the ball up and start attacks that way, rather than necessarily having a kind of number ten, because then that is that that might be a little bit too much, even for a team that as we've seen with Conte, likes to overwhelm the opposition. But I think I think Hoybier is really interesting. Like he, He's been a bit of a sort of culture war over the course of the season between supporters who see him. And, the, and this, these are views that have been expressed to me as well with conversations with contacts. You know, some, I think, do see him as a bit performative. You know, this whole look at me beating my chest. Yeah. Uh, I love to make tackles. Um, the Stefan Freund look um, updated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And some, I think, find that a little bit insincere, but others do really like that. But th- the thing is with him, I mean, also that Leicester game was a bit of a turning point because I remember that was the game where they played Winks, Skip and Hoybier. And it was at, and um, Conte took Winks off in the second half. And the reaction on social media from a lot of Spurs fans was, this is crazy. Why is it? Why is Hoybier this kind of teacher's pet he always stays on no matter how bad he plays because he wasn't in great form at that time and then he and then he produced that really good pass for the Bergvine equaliser and since then has been pretty good I mean he got dropped for the first time in a Spurs career for the Wolves game but other than that he's been an ever-present and as James says when Skip got injured obviously at that point we didn't know how good Benton Coo is going to be but I think there was a real worry. And for a while, it did play out. I mean, you remember the numbers of with and without Skip were, were very, very stark. The worry was that they'd be very stodgy in midfield. But Hoybier has added this progressive passing to his game. He's got a couple of goals this season as well. And, and the thing is, like, you know, with a player like him, he, you have to think there must be a reason why every manager at Spurs has picked him and trusted him. You know, he, he didn't miss a minute last season. And I know... From conversations I've had that Mourinho thought very highly of him and, and thought he was a sort of example for you know the other players to follow. He also never gets injured. And I was talking to Jack about this the other day. Like that is a really underrated quality, I think. You know, we we, we sort of with players like him, we just think, well, whatever. But always being available is really, really important. It, it's obviously like the least glamorous and sexy of qualities, but especially at a time where Spurs have had a lot of players who've come in over the last few years and had a lot of injuries. You know, that's a useful quality to have. And he has really stabilised things with Skip out, I think. I mean, the two things I'd say on that about him never getting injured are, one, I definitely feel there's a slight sense that he uh, sort of plays through the pain a little bit sometimes. I mean, last season, you know, he played more or less every minute last season and having been very good, I think, in the first half of the season, he really went off the boil in the second half of the season. When it all started to go wrong, that really did run parallel with his individual form, I thought. Yeah. Like, he looked absolutely knackered at the end of the season, which made his performances at the Euros even more baffling, really. Mm. This season, again, he's played when he's played, he's played more or less every minute of every game. He missed that Wolves game, as you said, and as everyone will remember, Spurs are pretty terrible that day. In the, the previous game against Southampton, he got taken off after an hour at 1-1, and obviously Spurs lost that as well. So... I mean, look, that's an incredibly small sample size and an incredibly simplistic way of looking at it. But that maybe is an indication that he is quite an important part of, uh, an important cog in this uh, system. It's tricky, isn't it? Because he, the eye 
and the brain sometimes disconnect with Hoiberg because of, one, of where he's from. So he's a Viking. Two, he's got all the tattoos. Now, you'd think he's an out-and-out defensive midfielder, but mm. he wants to be more than that. He needs to be more than that. You can't. I think it's very hard for teams with three at the back to justify having an out-and-out defensive midfielder. And I think that's in the as the team has improved in recent weeks, he's looked a little bit more like he can do more than that. You, you, you're right to be to pick out those two particular passes. The fact that you can actually you know label his good forward passes says something about the kind of player he is. You can't have eleven super talented technical players in, in in virtually any football team. He grew up as a more attacking player. The, the move deeper has actually happened only relatively recently when he sort of stumbled across the fact that he had this very good anticipation and was good at making interceptions. But that didn't happen until quite late in his career. I mean, he grew up idolising Zinedine Zidane. Uh, obviously, he's, he's half French, so, you know, that kind of makes sense. But also, you know, harking back to something Mourinho, another thing Mourinho said, which I do think resonates, is that at Spurs, you know, often we... we think about things in quite binary terms of like you know either a player is a starter or not but the reality is you need a big squad and you need to have players competing and it's good that skip isn't just going to walk straight back into the team and get rushed back and it'd be like hallelujah we so desperately need you i think even when he comes back he'll now have to he'll have a battle on his hands and that's good you know that that competition is good for everyone we'll come on to a midfielder who's whose creativity is um, not under scrutiny. Um, Luka Modric in a second here on the, on the view from the lane because I want to talk about his performance for Real Madrid and what a footballer he is. First of all, one other piece of news that has been in the wind, James, and it's now confirmed in the last few days is that the new manager of Manchester United will be Eric Ten Hag, which closes off in the way that we think about these global games being a series of gateways through which people can pass. Closes off another escape route, because that's what you always have to have from Paris Saint-Germain, for the beloved Pochettino. Manchester United looked like the obvious fit for Pochettino, but they've gone for Ten Hag. I mean, the first thing I say about that in Manchester United is that will come round again. And in the, time <laughs> since, in the time since Pochettino became an elite manager at Spurs, which maybe you'd put at like, what, 2016 maybe? Yeah, yeah. I mean, how many times does it seem like he's going to go to Manchester United? Three or four, four five times, yeah. times yeah. now. I mean, it's been, it's been a theme of the last sort of five or six years. So I'm sure that will come around again at some point. But you're right. Jack wrote a piece about this the other day. And there are very few sensible options for Pochettino now. You know, he's put himself, as we said before, at the elite level of, of managers in club football. And there are probably more managers you'd put in that group than there are clubs you'd put at that level, maybe. So mm. he's kind of in a situation now where it feels like his time at PSG is going to end relatively soon. I mean, I don't think that's a 100% sure thing, but I, I think it seems possibly more likely than not. Be amazed if he was still there next yeah. season. Amazed. Yeah, 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 completely. Yeah. And then, yeah, I, you know, I, I mean, I've discussed this with, with Jack a couple of times. I, I think it's not entirely inconceivable that this guy who is clearly one of the very best managers in the world will spend two years out of three and a half, four years in kind of the peak years of a manager's career in terms of age, you know, sat on a sun lounger waiting for the phone to ring, well, which is utterly insane. It is crazy now, yeah. If you think his three years since he reached the Champions League final have been spent first few months of that period, the end of Tottenham, which was miserable. Then he was off for however long, a year and a bit. Over a year, yeah. Yeah, a year and a bit. 
And then he's had a pretty miserable... I mean, I know he's won trophies and... He's going to win the league in France. Yeah, he'll win the league. And they didn't win it last season. And obviously he was the manager for the second half. So that's sort of partly his responsibility, but not entirely. Put him on that list of people who left Spurs to win trophies. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. But really, it's been... You know, it's it's not been a few years anything like the previous three years and the three previous to that. And I just I just hope he does get the role he deserves. I mean, I think like most people who have followed Spurs closely, it just seems amazing that a club like United wouldn't go for Pochettino. He feels so perfect, you know. And obviously, we'll see we'll see with Ten Hag. But I mean, I know he he would obviously you know he obviously wouldn't agree with this, and he. I think he has, you know, he's done some good things at PSG, but that club never, ever felt like a good fit for him. Um, and there's a, re- there's know, th- a reason I- for that, Charlie. Sorry to burst him. It's not a good fit for anyone. Uh, no, that, That's exactly. the problem. It just isn't, a, it is not a place where a football coach can, whether he's called coach, manager, head coach, I don't care what he's called, can actually do the things they want to do. The team brings in players willy-nilly, the sorry, the club brings in players willy nilly. The team is often picked from outside of the technical area. Until until twenty four hours ago, when Chelsea uh, lost to Real Madrid, the current holders of both the Champions League and the Europa League have had ex Paris Saint Germain managers at their at their head. It was the two predecessors of Pochettino. Absolutely it's crazy. Yeah, last season the Champions League and Europa League were won by the previous two PSG managers. Failing at Paris Saint Germain is not a failure. It's it, it is merely a rite of passage to prove that you are a top manager. You have to get the job, and then you have to fail at it because that's what people do. Paris Saint Germain haven't worked out a way to get Guardiola into the club, which is what yeah. they are, a, absolutely want to do. Well, it's interesting hearing you guys talk, um, I can't remember what it was, maybe last week or the week before, about Conte and PSG. And I have to say, when Conte was sounding off, you know, after the Burnley game and every week about saying, I'm not used to doing top four, et cetera, et cetera, I did kind of think, well, do you know what? Why don't you just piss off to PSG? Because that, you know, if you want a club where you just have elite players brought in and, you know, it's a kind of detached from reality, like that seemed to me at that time, like quite a good fit. Obviously now things have shifted quite substantially and I think he would be crazy to take that. But I think he's probably, given he's less of a sort of project manager than Pep or Pochettino, that would at least seem like a, a better fit. Except, except if, you can't, if you can't get on with the pussycats at, at, the, at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, what chance at a club where you are literally confronted in the tunnel at half-time with big Champions League games as Unai Emery was by a member of the board with tactical suggestions, I, I just don't see. Yeah, I, well, that's true. I don't see that at all. I've got to be honest. Uh, is this now, this point now, the first time since Pochettino got sacked by Spurs that he is regretting that more than Tottenham? That I mean, I, I, really... I, I, the, the first instinct would be like that part of last season where Spurs were kind of pushing towards the top of the league or top of the league even under Mourinho, but that was around the point that he got the PSG job, so he was probably fairly content at that stage wasn't it that's a really interesting one and and this is something to in november of last year do you remember james i did a piece on kind of two years since pochettino went. yeah and, and and i said at the end and it was slightly misinterpreted but i said the aim at everyone at tottenham is to be at a point where we're no longer pining for pochettino mm. and that was interpreted as what you're telling me that everyone at spurs is talking about this and saying they 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 uh they don't want pochettino it was like no no that's not the point the point was that you know in the way, like with a breakup, you know it, you've sort of finally got closure when you're not 
desperately hoping they'll take you back. And and I think now maybe, yeah, I don't know. I mean, th- this summer, I, I, it, certainly if Spurs get Champions League, I don't think they were going to be, you know, e- even if Pochettino was available, I think people would want to see through the Conte project. The idea about breakups there is what occurred to me as well. And James's question was about how Pochettino might feel. Um, and I think Maurizio needs to think very, very carefully about this because, yes, he loves the club and all the rest of it. But again, like a, a souring relationship, after you've left the house, it's easy to remember the sun-kissed nights on a beach in Koh Samui. But he was miserable. <laughs> he was miserable as sin by the end of his time at Spurs. I mean, you could see it in the bloke's face yeah. and body language. He had, <laughs> so was everybody else, by yeah, the way. He was a shrunken version of the powerful and, and and engaged and sometimes very sweet man that had run the club. And I, look, because he's him, if if the circumstances ever came about that he appeared again at the training ground with a Spurs tracksuit on and it's time for him to manage Spurs again, I would have no problem with that. But I think both parties need to remember the weeks when this wasn't working and when they were, they were staring at each other. And we were staring at him as well. You know, the, the Bayern Munich game, you can't forget those things as well. Just with him, because obviously you guys know him very, very well. How? What? I mean, not not a personal level. Yeah, I'm not suggesting you're out out with Maurizio all the time. But what what do you think would be the dream job for him? Because I'm wary of suggesting that of, of almost patronising him and saying that you know maybe someone like him who is more of a project manager who likes to have a bit more time is less suited to the kind of you have to win today mentality of most super clubs. But what team do you look at and be like, yeah, that would be that would suit him really well? I mean, would Real Madrid? I, I, well, the two the two that strike me, and I'm not suggesting either of these would happen, and I think we might have talked about this before, but in terms of like his ludicrous level of emotion and like his desire to build and kind of do things quote-unquote the right way, Liverpool and Dortmund are the two that I look at and think like... In that sense, he'd be a good fit. And you know, Klopp is going to leave Liverpool at some point. I think his contract ends up at the end of next season, is it, or the season after? I think that's right. I think it's end of kind of suggested he's not going to renew. You can kind of see that. I know, in terms of like, I think Jack wrote this in his piece, I can sense the on and off the pitch, he'd be kind of a good a good fit. You know, you don't want to do things exactly the same. You can never do that. But it might yeah. not be a bad transition to someone like him. Whether he's going to be in a position to get a job like that when that does come up is a different question. My guess is that he, at the way things have developed for him, and you know these are always moving plates, aren't they? But at the present moment, I suspect he's not going to get a super. We have to differentiate here between elite clubs and super elite clubs uh, just now. And I wonder whether he will be suited to someone like Dortmund or Atalanta teams who are keen to bring in young players, which you know we know he's very good with who want to play a bit of football and who have got something to aim for. In the case of Atalanta, to crack the dominance of the big three in Italy, or in the case of Dortmund, their endless project of closing the gap between themselves and Bayern Munich. I mean, I have no inside knowledge at all that these clubs are remotely interested in him. I still think Real Madrid and all of those super clubs would be interested in him. Mm-hmm. You know, all, all the big clubs really like him because he's in that small pool of elite managers. I just, yeah. I don't know what the best fit for him would be. But I guess we'll have to wait and see. After he left Spurs, he had that period where he was out of work. I don't suppose, if 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 it seems inevitable, he and Paris part ways. I don't get the impression that it would be a good thing for him to have another sort of curbishly period uh, in the wilderness. Although, as we've seen with Oliver Skip, 
being away from football teams makes people think very, very carefully about how good you are at your work, you know. Darren Fletcher in the 2009 Champions League final. <laughs> Best I mean, game he ever played for United. I, I think the last three years for Pochettino have like highlighted the way like you've got the, the timing just has to work out entirely right for a manager because you know he's just not been available at the right times is he? he you know when his when his son star was in the ascendancy at Tottenham they were never going to let him go then suddenly has a bit of a dip <laughs> over the course of uh, being realistic nine months ten months even if they did get to the Champions League final in that time and then suddenly he's sacked he's not able to walk into another big job at that point a year later, you know, he's been out of the game over a year and had like a bad few months at Spurs and maybe might have considered himself almost a little bit fortunate to get that PSG job, even though, as we've said, it's a bit of a nightmare. And then that's kind of been a bit up and down since, you know, there are definitely moments there it felt like he was going to be the one who was going to, kind of, that game against Barcelona last season, right? But they beat, they knocked Barcelona at Champions League. Yep, yeah, they did. Yeah. That's the high, that's yeah, the high yeah. water mark of his like time that, there, yeah. And they're not, they're not Bayern Munich out as well. Yeah, there are moments like that last season where it felt like, you know, he was going to be the guy that was going to win them the champ. He lost to City in the semi final, mm-hmm. right? Uh, yeah. yeah. And it, you know, they got close and it felt like maybe he was going to get uh, PSG to the final and go one better than they had the previous year or Spurs had two years before. Obviously, it didn't happen. This season clearly hasn't gone well at all, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. And he's back on a downer again. And it just, you know, it just feels like at, <laughs> he hasn't been on and up at the right moment to get the right job for him. It just felt like the jobs haven't aligned. Those jobs haven't come up at the right moments in terms of his career trajectory. Listen, we'll have a quick break when we come back. I want to talk about the game that's coming up against Brighton, which, of course, it's very easy to say, "Ah, home to Brighton." There's your three points. Ask Arsenal, and uh, we'll also talk about one of the most, uh, I want to say, amazing performances uh, by a player in the Champions League. Um, it's an ex-Spurs player, but actually, we need to talk about his whole career because. It looks like he's going to play till he's 40 and possibly be the best midfielder of his generation. We'll look back on uh, what... But enough about Giovanni Lo uh, Yeah, exactly that. Uh, we'll talk about Luka Modric as well. You'll listen to The View from the Lane. Yeah, welcome back to The View from the Lane. I'm Danny Kelly. With me today, James Moore and Charlie Eccleshare. You'd have to have had a... Uh, a heart of stone, not be bewildered, admiring the other night of the contribution for Real Madrid's comeback when it turned out to be against a, I thought, a pretty unlucky Chelsea in the end, of Luka Modric. And it's worth, you know, we have plenty of time on this podcast. It's worth just having a little talk about a player who Spurs in the end, were you could argue, were lucky to have for a few years because he's turned out to be and I see it being argued in the Athletic these days, the best midfielder of his generation. James, when he was at Spurs, and I'll talk about his arrival there in a second, but were we aware at any stage that that he was going to be a four-times Champions League winner, a Ballon d'Or winner, and arguably the most important midfielder of his generation? I I wouldn't say we would have uh, foreseen quite that degree of success, but I mean, it did become fairly obvious, I guess, in the first, maybe not the first season, but certainly by the second so he was an incredibly good player. And it I, I kind of felt like he thrived in the Premier League slightly before the era of people kind of acknowledging that that kind of player was kind of worthy of those kind of honours like Ballon d'Or and whatever. Because, you know, he's not a player who, and I know you're talking about an assist that he got on, on Tuesday mm. night, but he's not a player who gets a great number of goals or assists. 
So it, he's not necessarily the most spectacular player, or, or certainly wasn't in his time at Tottenham. But uh, in terms of like transforming a game, dictating a match, like set, setting the tempo, and you know, getting a team playing, it just made such a huge difference to to Spurs. And I know Jack did a tweet on Tuesday night after the game, yeah, suggesting that he was actually better than Xavi. And I think as I tweeted, I've not seen Javi come on half fit at Wigan on a dreadful pitch. <laughs> with Spurs really toiling, playing alongside like Wilson Palacios and Tom Huddleston, running a game and seeing that 3-0 <laughs> win. So, uh, you know, when Javi can do that, I know it's not Stoke, but it's close. Uh, when Javi can do that, I'll be impressed. I remember the England, the, the Wally with the Broly game where England lost Croatia at Wembley in, a, in an mm. absolute monsoon and the pitch turned into, um, cliche, a quagmire. And I remember being on the phone afterwards to my brother, who my younger brother, who is uh, a football journalist as well and who um, knows more about the game than I do. And uh, he was saying, oh, bloody hell, that game was destroyed, blah, 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 by the state of the pitch. And I said, well, the little fellow who was playing the midfield for Croatia didn't seem to worry too much about the state of the pitch. And it was about, within weeks, I think I'm right in saying, the Spurs announced uh, that they were buying this fella, and it was Luka Modric. And I remember, too, that the you're right to say, James, that in his first season at Spurs, in the first half of his time at Spurs, I thought, what's going on here? He was getting caught with the ball, the pace and physicality of the Premier League, as it does for so many players, appeared to be an issue. And then suddenly you could see the light bulb go on in his head, and he was skillful enough and intelligent enough to take a a step towards the ball. That's what I noticed he was doing as he was getting to receive it so that he was getting just enough time to turn himself through 180 degrees to face the play a little bit better. And from that moment on, when he realised that, you know, you're not going to get one second to play in the Premier League, you've got to make use of the first half second that the ball comes to you. And he's just started to play the ball in a way that... I. It's very hard to find players, and Jabby's a good, you know, is a good example who's just constant turning over of the ball, passing it to people in the same colour shirt, passing it forward to people in the same colour shirt. It's an amazing skill to have. We'll come on to his energy and his how he keeps going at 36 years of age in a second. He's been absolutely remarkable. But it's, that, it's, that, it's that thing of taking the ball and, and like progressing up the pitch, not having to be the person that does the flashy thing necessarily every time. Absolutely. But to quick, to quick, this drop off, quickly take the ball off a centre-back, turn which he was incredibly good at doing, and just shifting the ball out to like a wide player or someone further up the pitch with no fuss. Like get the team moving up the pitch quickly and no, no pissing around with step overs and whatever else. But and now we come to the part, of the, part no of the podcast where I tell you how great I am. You know, there is an actual slot for this. And that is, uh, I worked every day on TalkSport throughout the last World Cup. I worked every single day. And I remember the excitement. I remember how hot it was that summer in England. And I remember the excitement mm. coming up to the semifinals. And I felt like, a pariah when I was saying over and over again in the days prior to semi-final is if England, if Southgate goes out there with the team lined up as it currently is, they are going to lose this football match because Modric and Brozovic and um, Rakitic will not let you have enough of the ball in a three against two in midfield for you to make progress in that football match. And we saw what happened in the first half, England found a way to find a way. And in the second half, Croatia did what they did based around Modric's ability to hold the ball and to keep it moving to people in similar shirts. And it, everything that I feared came to pass. Modric took that World Cup semi-final away from England. My goodness, it, you know, refereeing decision, the handball, etc. They almost won the World Cup. 
Croatia almost won the World Cup because of, they had some really good players, but Modric was central to all of that. Well, he's the guy as well who's broken up the Ballon d'Or duopoly, mm. isn't he? Uh, which that was always going to take a special player. But yeah, that game, I was going to say, that game is one that really sticks in the mind because he absolutely killed England. And he is exactly the player England have, I don't think, ever really had in my lifetime. That, that guy who can just you know run a game in that kind of way from central midfield. You know, we, we've had very good central mm-hmm. midfielders, obviously Steven Gerrard, but uh, among them, very, very different from, from Luka Modric. And it's interesting because he arrived at Spurs as a attacking midfielder, you know, coming in off the wings and Harry Redknapp obviously then moved him to that central midfield role. As James says, you know, he often played in a two, a central midfield two in the Premier League, this, this small guy. And it, it felt really wrong at the time when he started doing it. And obviously, it was a revelation. In that first season, he started off as a number 10 under Ramos. When, when uh, Redknapp came in, he moved over to basically play out on the left. And it was only probably the second half, and maybe even the second season, that he played in that deeper position. Uh, and, you know, counter to what the perception of him was that he was small and slight, and that he wasn't going to be able to handle playing in central midfield in the Premier League in, in sort of 2008, 2009, whenever. He, that, that's when he started to thrive. And I mean, yeah. I think, you know, <laughs> we're the best one in the world. If he played in the Croatian league and he played in the Bosnian league for a little bit as well on loan, I think. I, I mean, I don't know loads about football from that part of the world, but I would imagine it's pretty physical. or certainly would have been then. I don't. I, I can't really imagine them playing in the Croatian league in like 2006, 2007. There weren't loads of massive blokes trying to kick you if you're trying to put your foot on the ball. Surely. Sure. No, I think you're right. I think. I reckon there were. I reckon there were harder bastards than Lee Catamol in that league. I could be wrong. <laughs> I think the difference. That, you football hipster yeah, talking about the Bosnian the, the, league. The difference is, I think, James, is that the cloggers in the Premier League get you a little bit quicker than those perhaps in in, in, Bos- <laughs> in Bosnia, um, and that's what that's what he worked out that he needed to, to just clip a tiny percentage of the time he was he was preparing what he was going to do, and once he got got the hang of that, it was no looking back. But it's also we talked about him here as, as a shabby turnover of the ball merchant. The, the critical goal he made for Real Madrid the other night. What a pass it was. I mean, maybe it's born of desperation. It's getting so late in the game and somebody's got to do something, which is, of course, what Real Madrid have been doing for 15 years without ever having a team who could say, look at their pattern. Look at what they're doing. The Bayern Munich press, the Barcelona ticket attacker. But Real Madrid have just had players who, when... Push comes to shove, just do something extraordinary. That pass, the trajectory of it for a start, it's like when a golfer is caught behind a tree. It went up so high that it allowed, it was Rodrigo, wasn't it, to to get, mm. he didn't put it into Rodrigo's run. He put it into a space into which Rodrigo ran. It was an incredible piece of football. I, th- I tweeted straight away, I think it's one of the goals of the season because the pass is so unique and there are so few players in the world who could play that. Uh, Harry Kane, a lot of people said, Harry Kane, what about Harry Kane? And yeah, he, he's probably one of the very few. But Outside I mean, of his foot as well. extraordinary pass. By yeah, the way, I, mean. I, know, I know this isn't what we're here to talk about, but that was a really good finish. Like people talked oh, yeah, about that. Finish as people well. talked about that finish like, you know, no. Rodgers had kind of put it on a plate for him and it was a tap-it. No, completely. It was an amazing I, finish. I, I described in the, t- I said it's a sensational finish. I mean, the difficulty to do that and, and he makes it look really Over easy. Shoulders. He yes, makes well, it look yeah. routine, but it's, it's an unbelievable finish. Yeah, the, the, uh, the, the pros would say, James, he still had a bit to do there, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a little bit, yeah. The other last thing to say about this, Modric is 36 going on 37. He is the essential player, along with, uh, with the equally aged centre-forward, in a team that, you know, once again is through to the semi-final of the Champions League, could easily go on and win the thing. He's another, another former Spurs playmaker who's out of contract this summer. 
If you're interested. <laughs> he will go down as a Real Madrid legend. Obviously, he is. He's a walking legend, the fella. It's worth remembering how the, the, the times we had watching him. One of you mentioned Tom Huddleston, who I have a great deal of time for, by the way. I, I, I like the way Tom played the game. But it wasn't like he was playing in an elite midfield at Spurs either, was it? Fantastic footballer. All of which means we can now no longer avoid what we need to avoid. The horrible phrase, a game at the weekend that Spurs not only probably small M must win, but ought to win. Those have proven to be this season um, some of the most difficult games for them. How are they going to get on? I presume, Charlie, you've been watching Brighton with great interest this season. Um, and we know that they, they, you know, they did us a huge favour by winning in North London recently. How can Spurs make sure they don't repeat uh, that North London triumph? Well, they've played. This will make it now. Choose um, February, March, April that these two teams have played each other. So they've they, they've but they've got quite used to one another. And I think it feel it on a simplistic level like a reasonably good matchup for Spurs. They've obviously they've won both games three one and two nil and looked pretty comfortable in both. I mean Brighton are. A similar to Tottenham in a way. They have very choreographed attacking plans. They're extremely well-drilled and well-coached. But Spurs have Kane and Son and Kudusevsky. So, you know, in in, in, the, in both of those games, there, there wasn't much in it when it came to chances created. But, you know, you've got Kane scoring the goal. He, his first goal against Brighton in the FA Cup game a couple of months ago was outstanding, bent into the top corner. So I'd imagine a similar kind of game where Brighton will come play well, create some chances. It's just whether they can finish them. And taking away... And last week, they scored two brilliant goals. I mean, that they were beautifully finished, but the build-up to both was really good as well, especially the second one. So, you know, it's a more dangerous-looking game than it would have been a week or so ago when they hadn't scored for... Exactly. You know, they'd lost their... Pre, you know, they'd lost six in a row. Then they drew. And in that time, they'd scored one goal in a 2-1 loss at Newcastle. So... Yeah, you know it's always the same with Brighton. You, I, you know they're not going to come and embarrass themselves performance-wise, but do do they have enough cutting edge? I mean, I think they had the inverted version of what they usually have of XG, right? Well, Arsenal's XG was actually like sort of right, two point eight, yeah. and Brighton's yeah, yeah. was like zero point eight or whatever. And obviously they won the game two one. So, I mean, it's just a fly in the face of what people normally say against Brighton. Possibly if it reverts to form they may not be quite so fortunate or they will continue to spurn chances in the next game. Uh, but clearly those cutbacks are the thing to look out for, right? Because both of the two goals against Arsenal were, is it mm. Mwepu who yeah. uh, created the first and scored the second, right? I, I and That's clearly uh, how they saw creating chances against Arsenal. And I, I suppose that maybe they'll look at that given Spurs play a back three, that might be a thing they look at again. Obviously, all I hope is that Spurs win the game. That, uh, and I'm not really at this stage of the season bothered how they do it. But I, as a sideline, I do hope that Mope plays and plays badly, obviously, on the pitch. I'm looking forward to him and Romero again. Absolutely. That was a really enjoyable subplot from that game. Two gentlemen not playing the game with the, at the height <laughs> of human politeness, shall we put it no more strongly than that? That's a really good example, though, of what Romero... R Romero spooks opposition attackers. He, he, got in, he got in Mope's head early on. He was. Oh, he was, I think... 
I think Mopay gets onto most and, football pitches with quite a lot going on in his can of stuff. I'm truthful. Go on. Yeah, but that was what was so good because Mopay is quite a sort of cocky character, mm. thinks he's the man. And Romero, obviously, like he does, I've said this before, he gets someone in his sights and is like, right, you, yeah, you and me, we're going to have this out. And he did it. And then Mopay went through in the second half and was so spooked that he tried this silly little dink over Larice that just sort of dropped kindly into Hugo's hands. So I will be watching that that matchup with interest. I would just take one issue down to something. I, I, I don't think this necessarily is a must-win game for Spurs. I think It's a dreadful, dreadful time to lose, to drop yeah. points and lose a bit of momentum. And an absolutely brilliant time to... Because uh, Arsenal play second. It's yeah. a good time to, quote-unquote, put the pressure on. And it's a way more alpha version of putting the pressure on when you're opening up a six-point lead, by the yeah. way, rather than, you know, closing the gap to four points behind something. Yeah, I'm not saying that, you know... It wouldn't be good. What do for you them mean, Echo Share? What the hell do you mean Spurs I, don't have to win this game? I think they can afford I think they can afford they've given themselves a bit of wiggle room, which is amazing, considering we were saying a few weeks ago that, you know, if they don't win this game then they're you know, they might struggle for Europa or some people. Well they've well they've won those games. That's that's largely the point, isn't it? The games that we said they had yeah. to win in the situation they got themselves after that run of def- Win, win, lose, win, lose. It'll be mad, right? You, you you lose that game to Brighton. Arsenal then play at Southampton at lunchtime. Who the previous week have lost six 0 at home. Oh, sorry, at three o'clock. Who the previous week who have lost six 0 at home? Arsenal win at Southampton. Then they've got their game at Chelsea midweek, and Chelsea clearly probably have less than half an eye on the Premier League at this stage with the FA Cup potentially by that point and the champ. Oh, no, they're out of Champions League. They're out of Champions League. Fine. They're upset because they're out of the Champions League, yeah. Two thirds of an eye on the <laughs> Premier League. Arsenal always get a result at Chelsea. It feels like they only have to draw that game and then they'd be above Spurs. Or it's absolutely nonsense. You're an intelligent man who nonsense. speaks 14 languages, ancient and modern. If Spurs don't mm-hmm. win, one of them is bullshit. If, one of those languages is bullshit. If Spurs don't win their home games, they ain't qualifying for no Champions League. Who who who's the person who's had faith with them all through this time? Uh, who even after Burnley said top four was it was it James? Was it Jack? I know you don't like to play your. Was own it trumpet. me? I really I really <laughs> hate to do it, but you've made me do it. I don't think it's so much. They don't. They, they also you were all saying off. Oh, they don't beat United. If they lose to United, it's over. That's over. They may as well call the season. They lost it, and they've been absolutely fine. Obviously, it would be better for them to win this game. I don't think if they don't win it, it will be the difference between getting Champions League or not because I think I Arsenal aren't going to win enough games. The psychology of it, I would worry about. Let, letting Arsenal, it's a bad time to let Arsenal back in immediately. Imagine yeah. the motivation yeah, for yeah, Arsenal yeah. for their game at Southampton. They, and they win that game when they're level on points with a game in hand. They go into that game in hand with Chelsea knowing that that's their opportunity to get into the top four. They're way more motivated than Chelsea. They only need to draw the game to get into the top four. And then from there, it's like, it's anybody's again, isn't it? Yeah, so, I, I just yeah. think for between now and the end of the season, I don't think even if Spurs have a mini wobble, I, I'm just not convinced with the games they've got, they can capitalise. All right, listen, thank you very much indeed, uh, Charlie there. The uh, podcast's very own Louis Armstrong, just delighted to blow his own trumpet. Um, and thank him for that. Um, thank you for listening for the last uh, uh, several minutes. Uh, we've enjoyed doing it as well. And if you're not already a subscriber to Athletic, don't forget that you can sign up right now to read all of our articles on Spurs, including uh, Jack's piece today on Hoiberg, which we discussed a little earlier, as well as a, a mountain of other stuff that you'll want to see. Uh, just go to the uh, athletic.com forward slash Spurs pod and sign up right now for just £1 a month for six months. We're back on Tuesday. That's after the Easter weekend. Um, hopefully, Spurs will not slip up at home. Very, very hopefully. Thank you for listening. The Athletic.